Thank you for listening to this message from Tree of Life Church. Our prayer is that it will be a blessing to you and that you will find it helpful for life. So open up your heart to receive God's word for you. Hey, again, thank you so much for joining us today. As I said, I think the buzzword right now is these are unprecedented times. And everybody is saying that, right? This is, we've never seen things like this before. And there's some people who are like, yeah, I've actually lived long enough that I have seen some things like this before. Um, But it's something that we've been talking about. And so today, what I want to do is I kind of want to look at what the Bible has to say about one of the issues of our time. And so what I want to do with you today is something a little bit different. I believe the Bible has practical answers for every single issue that we face. Um, The Bible is so very specific, even though sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Now, let me break that down for you. Sometimes it can feel in life like we don't have an answer that's specific to our culture, to the time that we live in. So a funny example of that would be like, if you're thinking like, I don't know if I should buy this car, you're not going to read in the Bible, thou shalt not buy a brand new F-250 if thou cannot afford the payments, right? But you will read, the borrower's servant to the lender. And you will read, oh, no man, anything but to love him. And so what we sometimes have to do is we have to take the principle, extract it, and apply it to today's culture. And I believe that the Bible has something to say about one of the main issues that we face. And that issue is the issue of discrimination. Now, I was reading through the Bible a while back and this just jumped out at me. And that's why I want to talk with you about it today. But here's what I want to address. There are some people maybe in this room or watching online who are thinking, can we please quit talking about this already? There are some people who are thinking, aren't you ready to quit talking about this? And I would say this, I'm really not ready to quit talking about it. But let me explain what I mean by that. I think that the way that we need to talk about this is across from each other at a table. And I would say this, that maybe some of social distancing, while it's necessary, has made it harder to really talk about some of these issues. I think that this discussion is one that's best had person to person. And as I was reading through the scripture and this passage jumped out at me about how the early church handled discrimination, my heart to you today is to share what I'm learning in this passage with you, kind of like we're just sitting person to person at a table. So what I want to ask you to do today is I want you to just picture that it's you and me and it's pre-social distancing and all the coffee shops are open and the espresso is flowing and we're sitting at a table and we're talking. So I actually got a coffee from our coffee shop here today. And I just want to sit and talk with you today about what the Bible has to say about discrimination. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is powerful, that it is um, perfect. God, that you always show us what to do. God, I pray today that we would not be that we would not be blinded to what you have to say because of defenses and guards. God, I pray that we wouldn't think about things through the lens of our culture, but that we would filter things through the lens of your kingdom. God, show us what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Father, help me to communicate clearly the message that I feel that you're showing me. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So you and I are sitting here and we're just going to talk about the Bible for a little bit. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't buy you a coffee. Typically, if we were hanging out, I would have done that, but uh, not today, and I apologize. 
I want to read you this passage. It's in uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says this, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God and not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we'll give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. And everyone liked this idea. And so they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. Now, these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread, and the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. So first, I want to give you kind of just a little bit of historical context for this passage, because it can seem pretty vague. But what was happening is, from what I can gather, the church was probably around one year to five years old at this time. It's about a year to five years since Jesus had died, resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. So it's very new, but it's growing rapidly. And they run into this problem. And here's kind of where the problem lies. There were two groups of people in the early church primarily. At this point, it was really comprised of Jewish people. They hadn't really branched out to non-Jewish people. And so there was mostly Jewish people. But within the Jewish culture, there were two different kind of subcultures. There were the Greek-speaking Jews. And then there were the Hebrew-speaking Jews. Now, at that time, uh, many Jewish people had kind of scattered across the known world. And so as they had scattered, they had adopted the Greek language as their primary language instead of Hebrew. Now, what that meant is that they would worship in Greek. They would read the Bible or the Old Testament in Greek. And that was kind of like their whole cultural framework and background. The Hebrew-speaking Jews were from the Jerusalem and Judea in this area, and they still held on to speaking Hebrew as their primary language. They still held on to worshiping in Hebrew, praying in Hebrew, reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. So these people are the same ethnicity, same religion, but the cultural background was so different that you had to identify them differently. And the problem that the early church runs into is that they are taking care of widows within the church. They're distributing food. And the Greek-speaking widows are saying, hey, you're not taking care of us the same way you're taking care of the Hebrew-speaking widows. Now, this becomes a problem, obviously, because the early church is being accused of discrimination within its ranks. So to be clear, we're not talking here about uh, ethnic or racial discrimination. We're talking about cultural discrimination. But I believe, again, the principle carries over into the racial discrimination that we see today. And so what I want to do is I want to go through this just verse by verse, and I want us to kind of break down what we can learn from each piece of the response that the early church had to finding out that discrimination was happening on their watch. So I would just challenge you today, let's kind of come into this with a clean slate, an open mind, and let's see what the church did about this. So let's start in verse one. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were be being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, first, I want to give you a sidebar, and this is not necessarily related, but you notice that the church was growing 
and problems started. I just want to pause and point out that anytime you're seeing growth in your life or in an organization that you're a part of, problems will come with it, right? Because you have to manage it as it grows. And our ability to manage and steward that growth and the problems that come with it, that kind of determines whether God can bless us with more growth. If we're faithful in little, then we'll be entrusted with even more. But that's kind of a sidebar. The thing that I think is really interesting, though, is that the diversity of the church created problems. And I think that's really interesting because uh, diversity will always be more difficult than sameness, but it will always be worth it. And I really believe that because if you think about it for a second, if I only hung out with people who grew up in the same context as me, who think like me, who dress like me, wear skinny pants like me and play guitar like me, who vote like me, my life would be pretty easy because it would be low friction. But if you think about a marriage for a second, in a marriage, we typically understand that the best marriage is often two very different people coming together because like a puzzle piece, they fit together and complement each other. If my wife were the same type of person as me, we would be vastly disorganized and every conversation would take two hours to get to the original point because that's how I am. But my wife is different than me. She's pretty matter of fact. She doesn't play around. She gets to the point. She's quick in her conversation and when she, she keeps things organized. So we kind of work together. There can be friction because of it sometimes, but the friction is worth it because of the benefit. And I think the beautiful challenge of a multicultural context is I have to take my beliefs, my attitudes, my assumptions, and I have to ask myself, is this belief informed by scripture or by my culture? Because when I grow up, in a culture where everybody thinks like me, it's assumed to be true. But the problem becomes when somebody from a different culture believes something else, I have to pause for a second and think, okay, is what I believe about this scriptural or cultural? And the tipping point is this. Culture is awesome. I think culture is so fun. I love going to different countries and experiencing as close to firsthand uh, as I possibly can what it's like to live in that culture. My wife and I don't do the typical touristy things a lot of times. We find like the, the weirdest restaurant we can go to because we want to experience what is it like to live here. And I think it's really important to note that culture is great, but the tipping point is right here. When culture disagrees with God's kingdom, Culture is what needs to bow every single time. Culture is excellent. Culture is fun. But if culture disagrees with God's kingdom, it must bow. So the first thing the, the local church, the early church teaches us is that diversity is always difficult, but it's actually so worth it. And we've got to challenge our cultural assumptions by lining them up with God's word and seeing if they really fit. Verse two, it says, so the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. And they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now, the first thing I see here is that they called a meeting in response to it. And what that tells me is that the first response should be that we listen. Our first response should be that we listen. You know, we live in the age of the comeback, right? Everybody waits while someone's speaking, not so that they can hear what they have to say, but we form our argument in our head while they talk. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? 
Maybe on social media, you were like, you're typing so fast and you realize like, I've got to stop or else I'm going to hit enter and it's going to be bad. Is that just me or? Okay. All right. The two laughs told me it's not really and nobody wants to admit it. So I get it. That's okay. But we live in the age of the comeback. And I think that part of it is because of the fact that, you know, we have media that the whole entire structure is built on watching people debate on TV. We do that for fun. But then what happens is that we start to see people as someone to debate, not someone to love, not someone to listen to. And I think what's so crazy about the early church is that the, the early church, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, were being discriminated against by the Roman government that was oppressing them. And so they had a comeback. When the Greek-speaking Jews told them, hey, you're, you're discriminating against our people, the early church could have stopped and said, well, you, you do know that we're being discriminated against too. But they chose to pause and listen. And this is not in my notes, but I do want to just put this out there. Something shifted for me when I started talking to friends and not just reading about issues. When I started talking to friends who were on the other side of issues, compassion shifted in me. I began to understand people's stories and it wasn't anecdotal and it wasn't something that I saw on TV and it wasn't a stat even. It was someone with a face and a name and a purpose and a heart. And I think we've got to get back to the table of talking to each other, the table of listening. And the first response of the early church wasn't a comeback. It was to listen. And I would just ask, when's the last time that we listen just to listen? Maybe the next time that we have a comeback, we should pause and we should ask the Holy Spirit, okay, Holy Spirit, help me to listen to you and help me to listen to them. Maybe the next time you feel like you've got a comeback, maybe just replace it for a question. Tell me more about that. Tell me what it's like to be in your world. How did that make you feel? First response is listening. You know, the other thing that we can sometimes think is that we're not responsible for it because it's not our fault. But the early church teaches us that we are all responsible to be part of the solution. I mean, did you notice this is they call it a meeting of all the believers. Now, I don't know where they fit all these people. I can imagine they're just trying to cram them in somewhere. Some people are standing on the outside because by that time there were a lot of believers in Jerusalem. I mean, we're talking about somewhere around like 500 by the time Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter goes and preaches a sermon one day and 3,000 people get saved. Not all of them were from Jerusalem, but stop and just picture, this church is growing. And they didn't just call a meeting of the people who were discriminating. They called a meeting of all the believers. And sometimes in our culture, we have this thought, well, you know, I'm not a person who discriminates and I'm not a racist person. So why should I be responsible for this? And I would say that it may not be your fault, but once we become aware as a believer, it is our responsibility to help repair it. And the biblical model for this is Jesus. Because Jesus was not at fault for any of the sins that I've committed. He wasn't at fault for any of the sins that you've committed. Although I know that you're better than me, right? You know, we just want to establish that. But Jesus came down from heaven, not being at fault, but choosing to take responsibility for my sins in order to bring a solution. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus took on my sin to provide a solution 
so that I could be reconciled to him. And maybe as believers, it may not even be anywhere remotely your fault. But maybe as a believer, you're called to be like Jesus and I'm called to be like Jesus and take responsibility for something that maybe we didn't even create and say, you know what, I'm gonna do this so that people can be reconciled to God and to each other. The other thing here I wanna point out in this particular passage is the believers did not deny that they were different from each other. You know, there's a popular school of thought today that kind of says like, uh, I, I'm just gonna be colorblind. And, and you heard Pastor Dave talk about that a few weeks. There's, there's some people that really truly believe, and I believe with good intentions, believe that if we just stop talking about race, then the issue of racism will go away. I would actually submit to you that that is not the model that we see in scripture or that we see Jesus following. And here's where I get that from. Jesus lived in a cultural context as a Jewish person where Jewish people did not like Samaritan people. It was along ethnic lines. It was racial discrimination. And it was vice versa as well. Jesus, in an attempt to break down the barrier of racial discrimination and prejudice, tells a story, and the story is of the good Samaritan. And Jesus clearly identifies everyone's ethnicity in the story that he tells in order to draw some very important distinctions. So he says there was a priest. Well, the priest would be a Jewish person. He says, well, there was a Levite. Well, the Levite would naturally be a Jewish person. That was a tribe of Israel. And then he says, and a Samaritan came along. And he's telling this story to Jewish people. So Jesus telling a story to people of his ethnicity, uses racial terms to help dismantle racist problems. And the thing about God is this. God looked at creation and he saw that it was good. And I believe that when God looks at the people that he's created, he sees their differences and he sees this is good. And our responsibility as believers is to see that same thing that God sees. See, diversity is not about erasing differences. It's about embracing our differences. Our role and responsibility is not to say, oh, I don't even see your color or your culture. I don't see your nationality and your background. Our role and responsibility is to see, say, I see it. I embrace it because you're God's kid just like me. And that is the model that Jesus represents. See, the early church could have said, hey guys, you know, uh, we're all one now and, and we're not gonna talk about who's Greek speaking and who's not. And Paul did say there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female. But when you see it in its context, he's not saying they don't exist. He's saying there's no, there's no separation anymore. We're bringing them into one. And that's what the early church did. We walk into verses three through four. And it says, and so brothers, these are the 12 apostles talking. It says, so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And we'll give them this responsibility. And then we, decide, we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Now, what this speaks to me is that if we as a church want to address the issue of racial discrimination, then we have to address both the spiritual and the structural. And where I see that is when you see that the apostle said, we're going to appoint seven men. So they were forming a team to fix the issue. 
And then they said, we want them to be full of the Spirit. So that's a spiritual thing. We want them to be full of wisdom. Now we understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So true wisdom comes from God. But let's think of it this way. We want them to be spiritually sound and we want them to be practically wise, right? Like the Bible will teach you how to access the throne room of God by praising and by getting into his presence. And that's spiritual. But the Bible will also teach you not to co-sign on a loan for somebody. And there's somebody out there that's like, oh, I wish I'd have read that first, you know? It happened to me, <laughs> my kid. <laughs> uh, that was too far, sorry. Um, but the Bible would teach you spiritual and practical. And what we see here is that the, the believers understood that we can't just address the problem spiritually and forget the structure, but we can't just address the problem structurally and forget the spiritual because they are connected together. And there are some people who will say, well, we just got to vote and we just got to do this and we just got to do that. And I think those things are important. But if we only focus on the structural, we'll miss the spiritual root. And how many of you know that if you miss the root of something, it always grows back? I know because every time I mow my lawn, I think I should probably pull that weed up, but I just mow it and let it grow back again. And it's always the first thing to grow back, interestingly enough. There are other people who believe we should just address the spiritual. We should just pray about it. And if we pray about it, God will fix it. But I would say that they're interconnected more than we know. And, and here's kind of how I would explain that today. When we look at the structural and the spiritual, a structural problem might look like my schedule is so packed, I never have time to rest. The spiritual root might be, I'm afraid of letting people down. I have a problem with pleasing people. I need people's approval because I don't realize that God already approves of me. So I say yes to everything. I don't have the capacity to say no. Uh, it might look like, you know, I work way too much. I don't see my kids and I do it. That's my structural issue. I do it not because I'm greedy, but I do it because I, I have this fear deep inside that God's not going to provide for me. That's a spiritual root. And so the apostles saw that there was a spiritual root and a structural fruit, and they had to work together to fix both of those things. Now, this leads us to another important point is that the apostles understood this. They weren't called to be the primary people to fix the structural problem. The apostles taught us that we have to all know our role in ending discrimination. Because the apostles said, and it can sound kind of cold if you don't read it in the right context. The apostles are like, it would be wrong for us to quit preaching and reading our Bibles so that we could serve tables. And it sounds kind of harsh, but what they're saying is, listen, we know this needs to be taken care of, but we're the spiritual side of this equation. We're not necessarily the structural side. So let's set up some structure, find some guys who are called to that, and we'll take care of the spiritual side. Now, what it means also, too, is that everybody's involved a little bit in both worlds. Does that make sense? The apostles helped set up the structure. So they were involved in the structure. And then the men who were involved in the structure were supposed to be full of the Spirit. So they were involved in the spiritual side. But we have to step back and ask God, what's my role in this? Maybe you're structural. Maybe you own a great business and you can be part of diversity in the workplace by hiring people of different ethnicities to be part of your leadership team. Maybe you're spiritual. Maybe you're just called to sit at coffee shops with friends and build bridges. And maybe you're called to, I think the most important calling of all that we all are called to in praying over all of this. Whatever your role is, you've got to ask the Holy Spirit to show it to you and then give you the courage to fulfill it. In verse five, it says, everyone liked this idea, which can we just say that was a miracle in the first place, right? Have you ever decided where to go to lunch? Like nobody even agrees on that. They chose the following, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, 
Well, I always think that name sounds like Parmesan and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. Now, here's what's fascinating if you study this out. Every one of these names was a standard Greek name. Now, what that means is like, uh, I go to Mexico a lot. My name, Cody, does not translate in Spanish. Um, my favorite is going to Starbucks and watching how they spell it today. You know, uh, my favorite one was Kogi with a G. That was awesome. So these names were not translated from Hebrew into Greek. These were just regular old Greek names. That may not seem like a very important thing, but what it tells us is that each of these men that they chose to be a part of this task force to help fix discrimination against Greek-speaking Jews were Greek-speaking Jews, with the exception of one. And that one person was Nicholas of Antioch. He was an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. Now, that means that he was not of the same ethnicity as them. Actually, he was from the region that would be modern-day Turkey, and he had converted to Judaism and then eventually into Christianity as well. And so what we see here, this principle, is that any solution for discrimination must include people from diverse backgrounds. We have to involve people of various ethnicities in our solutions for racism and discrimination. Now, inclusiveness is a really hot topic today. Everybody's saying we have to make sure that people of different ethnicities are involved, not just in an organization, but in the leadership structure of an organization. But if I could just point this out, the Bible was telling us this over 2,000 years ago. The early church was modeling this over 2,000 years ago. They knew something that you and I, I think, could learn from. When we include people of different backgrounds, we begin to reduce our blind spots. I was getting on the freeway the other day and I looked over my shoulder to check my blind spot and I didn't look long enough or far enough and I missed a car. And I'm glad that they were nice, probably nicer than I would have been because I didn't see him and I just started going for it. And then I had to do the I'm really sorry thing, you know. A blind spot is something that we can't see. And when we are in circles where everybody is like us, it's easy to not see things from another person's perspective. When we become inclusive in our leadership, what we in, uh, what we in essence do is we reduce our blind spots because somebody from another culture might say, hey, I don't know if you thought about it this way, but somebody else might see, uh, see that as this. And we begin to think in a more inclusive and diverse way. And it actually serves to help us spread the gospel. And so we have to remember that we need to include people of diverse backgrounds. Verse six says this, these seven men were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And we don't need to spend time on this, but it goes back to this thought. Any solution for racism and discrimination must include prayer. If we don't include prayer, we will never address the root and it will never be fixed. And the apostles knew that it could only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse seven, our final verse, it says, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. And I, I kind of like locked into this word, so. So God's message continued to spread. And I'm not saying that this is what the writer intended when they said it, but it just hit me this way. So God's message continued to spread. I think we could say, would God's message have continued to spread? if the early church had let this issue go on and not addressed it. And it's really interesting because not only did it spread, but it spread rapidly and the, believer, the number of believers increased greatly. 
And if you break it down even further, the people that they chose to be a part of this task force helped push the gospel immensely. Stephen was the first Christian martyr ever. And part of the reason that he was killed for his faith was because he was preaching to Greek-speaking Jews from northern Africa, from modern-day Turkey, and different areas. Philip, one of the people from the original task force, goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel to the people that the Jewish people were separated from on ethnic lines, and they received the Holy Spirit, and God just pours out his presence there. Later on, Philip is led by God to minister to this man. And this man is the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. So now what we see is Philip, the Greek-speaking believer who was appointed to the task force to help reduce discrimination against Greek-speaking believers, preaches the gospel to people from an outcast ethnicity in Samaria. And then he preaches the gospel to a government official from Northern Africa, who we can only presume probably took it back with him. The gospel begins to spread in ways that we wouldn't have dreamed. The other thing that you see here is that the Apostle Paul was a Greek-speaking Jew from modern-day Turkey. If the early church didn't address these issues of discrimination, how quickly would the gospel have spread? We can't really say, but I could assume it would have been a lot slower. The other thing that we see there is that influential people, priests, receive the gospel. Now, I don't believe that God thinks that influential people are more important than you and I, but I do know that God likes to use natural influence to push his supernatural power. And these people began to respond. You know, when the church is undivided, the gospel is undeniable. The gospel becomes undeniable to people of diverse backgrounds, of different socioeconomic status, when the church is undivided. And so I hope that you've kind of journeyed with me through this today. And I want to ask a really bold question in closing. And I know this is kind of different from what it would normally be. I know I haven't been very funny today, um, but I think that these questions are important. Here's the question I want to pose to you. And James, the brother of Jesus, writes this. He says that pure an undefiled religion is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to not let ourselves be corrupted by the world. The Bible says that Jesus is like the bridegroom. He's like the groom and the church is like the bride. And it says that Jesus is looking for a bride that is spotless and without blemish. And I would ask you this question, if the early church had not dealt with the issue of discrimination, if they hadn't taken care of widows, if they had let their religion not be pure and undefiled, would there have been a blemish on the bride of Christ in that era? I think the answer has to be yes, right? I mean, if they just let it go, the answer has to be yes. And I, I wanna ask this question to all of us today. And I'm including myself and I'm including you and. I'm including globally the church. I'm so thankful for our senior pastor who has done such a great job of addressing this and has taken a, a biblical stance um, and has done an excellent job. But I would just ask today, if the church of 2020 is unwilling to address the issue of racial discrimination, 
Could it be that it would be a blemish on the bride of Christ? And could it be that when the world sees us, they won't see an undeniable gospel, but they would see maybe just a divided church? Or maybe even worse than a divided church, maybe they would see a church that is irrelevant to where they're at today. So the answers that we're looking for in the season that we live in were really provided for us over 2,000 years ago. And we just are following the biblical pattern and the biblical model that launched the early church into a great season of growth that impacted the known world at that time. We're sitting here today, I would argue, because the early church dealt with the issue of discrimination. Will you pray with me today? Father, I thank you for the chance to do something about this. This could sound like a heavy message, but the beautiful thing about this is that you provided us the answer key right here in Acts chapter six. Sometimes in our world, we just shut down the noise because we think this is too much for me to process and it's too big for me and my voice doesn't matter. But God, I I just know that when the church operates biblically, the world takes notice. And so this could seem like a heavy message today, but I just want to encourage everybody under the sound of my voice. This message doesn't end with what if. This message ends with we can. We can learn to lean in and listen like the early church did. To not be part of the culture of the comeback. We can choose to be part of a solution. We can choose to take responsibility for things that aren't our fault, just the way that Jesus did. We can choose to include people of different ethnicities in our day-to-day lives and activities. We can choose to build bridges and, and we can choose to know our role and to play it. We can choose to pray. We can choose to embrace diversity instead of trying to erase our differences. And if we choose all of that, then what we'll choose is the spread of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope that you enjoyed this message. You can find more messages and information about Tree of Life Church at treeoflifechurch.org. We'd like to invite you to come visit us at 5513 IH35 South in New Braunfels, Texas, or you can watch us on live stream. Thank you again for listening.